Welcome to The Francisca Show. Today's episode does not have our regular intro or the music because we are in the nine days or you might be listening to this on Tish Above. I want to thank you for listening to The Francisca Show, a part of Jewish Coffee House Network, and you are listening to the Tish Above special. Before we get started, I want to mention one thing about last week's episode. I'd like you to know that it was quite difficult to find volunteers to speak on record and willing to share reasons for their divorce. And I had to pull an excellent interview that I recorded for that episode because it was highly sensitive and for several reasons I was not able to release it. So I just want you to know what goes on behind the scenes and understand when you're listening to something, especially as sensitive as the topic of last week's episode. Okay, and one more thing, there will be a small announcement at the end of the episode. So without any further ado, let's get started. Welcome back to the Francisca Show. Today with us, we have Shalom Leifer. This is our Tish Above special and we will jump right in. Talk to us about your religious background and professional background, and then we'll go into the activism and all the other incredible things you do. Okay, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So my name is Shulam Leifer. I am Hasidish. I'm 37 years old. I was born and raised in Borough Park. Uh, I went to Babov, and my family were Babov Hasidim, and still are my my whole life. So my I was raised in Borough Park as Hasidish. I went to Babov Shiva Cheder. I as I got married in two thousand and nine. I have three wonderful children. I've since moved from Borough Park to Marine Park in Flatbush. And my career originally was as a healthcare executive. I, I ran a home care company for a number of years, and then I transitioned into activism and then victim advocacy. Okay, thank you for giving that explanation. How did you get into this work of child sex abuse activism? I got into it accidentally. I was just a member of the community and I started speaking up about some issues that I felt needed speaking about. Namely, initially, I started speaking out about the lack of education, or secular education, that's given to Hasidic people growing up, Hasidic kids, boys primarily growing up. And so because I became outspoken, I, I guess I started becoming aware and being told about issues. People started disclosing to me. And it sort of, it went from just speaking out about issues that I felt needed changed into specifically having to deal with cases of sexual abuse. And so then, and so that's sort of what I landed on. Well, I'm not satisfied with the answer. I feel like there's a little bit more to the story. You're not giving it. Well, I mean, look, I, I like anybody growing up, in, you know, in their thirties, I know a number of people who have been sexually abused. People in my family have been sexually abused, se sexually abused as children, people very close to me. It's always been close to my life. In short, I became an activist and advocate because the people that I knew needed help were getting the help that they, that they needed. I realized I have a skill 
uh, are articulating problems and I know how to navigate the legal system in a way that most survivors don't. And so I decided to use those skills that I learned in my professional career and just that Hashem gave me to fight for people who otherwise might not be able to fight and being a victim of sexual abuse, even though people never choose that. And, be, and even though it's something that happens, you know, to us that leaves us sometimes weaker than the average person, it still requires us ironically and almost cynically to have to fight, right? For justice. And because people who were hurt have a harder time fighting, mm-hmm. I felt that, you know, it would be good if I continued to stay in this fight and help people where where they can't do it for themselves. That's really why I, I became an activist. There isn't anything really deeper than that. When you said you know how to navigate the legal system, how do you know how to do that? I was a, exposed to it in, in my professional work, just dealing with lawyers. And it's just a knack. It's just a, it's just a skill that I have. I'm what some people call litigious or I have a innate understanding on how to pu- push levers of uh, leverage, how to you know get, gain leverage. In uh, I guess you know it's a nego- it's a, a lot of it is a yeah. skill of being a negotiator, right? Correct. Yeah. Um, so knowing how to negotiate is a skill you pick up in business, and I f- and I felt like I can apply those skills. And once I tried, I saw that I I, I met some measure of success. I continued to do it. Before we spoke, you told me that you're considered very controversial. And for anyone who listens to the Francisca show knows that we do no more silence episodes regularly. And we give survivors of sexual abuse and all kinds of abuse a voice on this podcast. And we're not afraid to talk about the uncomfortable realities that do happen in firm communities as well, because we are humans. And what about your work? To the point where, let me tell you why I'm going here. I I forget that there are communities out there that are still uncomfortable around this, especially after Chaim Walder. I think everyone stepped up their game a little bit with awareness and prevention programs for children and parents. Why do you still consider yourself controversial? Is there something that we don't know? (laughs) So yeah, to, to be to be clear, I do not consider myself controversial in the sense that I'm I'm very proud of the work that I do, and I don't I don't think that I shouldn't be doing it, and I think there's nothing controversial about you know being outspoken you know and and speaking truth, but the fact of the matter is is that I'm in many respects a whistleblower, and whistleblowing implies that you know you need to be telling on somebody, and actually let me back up. I realized in my advocacy, okay, and in my activism, that speaking out about things that need to be changed necessitates saying what it is that's wrong. And in the case of especially abuse, it's not just some abstract issue that we talk about, like high, let's say this high lifeline, for example, you know, there's nothing controversial about high lifeline because it's helping people and we know that people need to be helped and it's something that happens to us, right? but nobody's doing it to us. Cancer is not something that is done to us. But even with cancer, right? The fact that I could say cancer on a podcast for, you know, from people consume is itself something that probably would not have been possible 15 years ago because we didn't say the word cancer. 
we said, you know, we, we as a community uh, do have, a, you know, have, a, I, again, I wouldn't say we as a community, but growing up, I, I was raised, I'm trying to say this differently than I used to, because I assume that when I say us as a community, everybody who's part of this community would know that it's true and then accept that as a, you know, as truism. But I'm learning, I'm learning, you see, as part of the advocacy, I'm learning that when you say things that are not pleasant, even though they're true about the community that you're from and the people you're saying it to are maybe members of the same community, they still consider that a controversial thing to say, right? And so bad things happen. Cancer happens, right? So we as a community have been, have, have become more accustomed to allow ourselves to say the word cancer. And so it became that people are happy to speak out about it, happy to raise money for it, happy to be associated with fundraisers for those things. But the problem with abuse is that even though it's as ubiquitous, there's as a bad cancer, guy. As you, there's a bad guy or a bad woman, bad person. There's somebody who did it, right? And now not only is there somebody who did it, but there's somebody who has to pay for it, right? And there are people who love and, and, and support that person who are going to deny it, who are going to fight very hard to avoid that, that kind of consequence. And so now when it becomes something that we, you know, bear speaking out and is helpful, to speak out. Nobody should consider it controversial, right? If we go, uh, if somebody said that, hey, so-and-so on my street, on my block, is giving our kids, you know, non-kosher food, right? Because everybody innately understands that this is something that as a community and as neighbors and people who are, you know, responsible for one another on some societal level, we have a duty to inform each other. We have a duty to say, hey, this is a problem. Stay away from it. That person might be bad for your kids. But when it comes to abuse that we know might be happening, or we, of course, on some level are certain is happening because statistics are statistics, right? Facts are facts and humans are humans. Because somebody did it, it's controversial to speak out about it. And my particular brand of activism is very much so to bring public awareness, to say the things that people are uncomfortable to say about to name the names of people who people don't want to name, because I strongly believe that part of caring for each other and part of helping is verbalizing. Give us some examples of the work that you've done and you do, so we can continue this work that you're doing by bringing awareness. So for, first of all, you know, I was doing this with other activists in the space for a number of years before I sort of it became my thing, right? Because like I mentioned earlier, you know, if you're in a relatively small circle of activists and people who want to speak out and do things for the public good, you know, it, you, you, tend to, you tend to get a lot of overlap in the problems that you face because there's not many people, you know, trying to solve a, a large percentage of problems. So, uh, but when Chaim Walder happened and there was sort of a, I want to say a watershed moment in the, in the discussions within the Haredi community of sexual abuse and child sexual abuse. I became aware of a few cases that I, that I decided to work on full time. One of them was a case of somebody named Daniel Dresner, who actually was reported on in the news. There was an, you know, an NBC special done by a reporter named Sarah Wallace. This is a guy named Daniel Dresner who's a licensed therapist and was treating some, uh, I was treating people in the Muncie area as a, an employee at a, from mental health clinic called Das Wellness. 
And the, when I was made aware of that case, there were a number of his victims. They were young women, Hasidish women, who went to see him for having experienced child sexual abuse or sexual abuse trauma in their past. And instead of helping them, he took advantage of them. And he unfortunately groomed them for over a period of time and ended up sexually abusing them. And of course, harming their mental health more so than it was before they came to them. And so these, but the problem was that these women were adults. And when they went to tell their story to the police. The statute of limitation. The, the police simply didn't treat them. Well, no, it was within the statute, actually. They, they, they went right away. In that, in, they went to, they went to report to the Haverstraw Police Department in Muncie. And the detectives who interviewed them, I mean, they went in without any representation and they, and they, they were not getting professional advice. And they went into the police and they told their story. And the police, frankly, treated them like, you know, women who got into a relationship with their therapist and, and sort of regretted it. And of course, that's not trauma informed. You know, the law is that a person can't consent to a romantic relationship with their therapist. And any therapist who engages in a romantic or sexual relationship with their client is breaking a law and is engaging in, if they're having, if they're having sex, they're, they're engaging in statutory rape. Similar to how you would be with it, you know, one would be if they were engaging in a, in a sexual or romantic relationship with a child. So, but unfortunately, the laws being what they are, and it doesn't matter, you know, the fact is that the system does not treat people and the law the way we would hope they do. And the fact, and so these women, unfortunately, were not taken seriously, and they were sent on their way. The this, Mr. Dresden was arrested based on the report of one of the women having bruises and, and physical injuries that they could prove. And so this man was arrested on a simple uh, misdemeanor assault charge. And so I had to go and advocate on their behalf, you know, to the police and to the prosecutors and sort of uh, get them to listen to this story again with an open mind and review the evidence that, that, that was there. And they ended up rearresting him and charging him with 55 counts of sexual abuse for which he, he ended up pleading guilty to some of those charges and, and he's going to be sentenced, I think, soon. But that's an example that they ended up getting coverage, media coverage, but that by the time it got media coverage, it was almost two years into the case and I had been working on that. You know, there were many steps that had to go, had to be crossed before we would got to the point where he was even arrested. Uh, so that was one case that is fairly well known and that I, that I worked on. There are, there are a number of others that I've been involved with. I've been involved in the Weberman case that everybody knows about, you know, Nehemia Weberman. I don't know if you need me to elaborate on who that is. Uh, Nehemia Weberman is a man who was placed by the, by a Hasidic, uh, let me back up. So it, in, I think 2012 or 2013, Nehemia Weberman was arrested for having sexually abused a young woman who was sent to her him by the school she went to, and, and that was, there was the Satmar Girls School of Williamsburg. They had a habit of sending girls who were not compliant with the rules or, or were struggling with sneeze issues to this man named Chevy Weber for guidance. And he, he was, he's a serial sexual abuser, and he preyed on these people, women and girls who were sent to him. And one of them had him arrested 
on, you know, came forward and he was arrested and convicted on, on those charges. That was 10 years ago. But in, in the course of the intervening 10 years, there was a, a great effort to whitewash him in the community and, and, and sort of nobody ever really believed, or in the, in the Satmar community, they continued to argue that he's innocent. Many of the facts in the case were not known to the public. And so when, when the victim who came forward tried to sue him in civil court, they were having a very hard time establishing a connection with Satmar and to the people who were ultimately responsible for putting this young woman in harm's way. Uh, I was able to get involved with this person's legal counsel. I was able to help make a record. I actually um, was instrumental in, in, uh, in, help, in, in causing Satmar to settle with this victim. They actually paid millions, a lot of people don't know this, but they paid millions of dollars um, to the victim over a year ago in that one case. And I happen to know that there are many other victims. I'm aware of up to 18 victims in this case, um, six of which the district attorney, when he was arrested, alone interviewed. And so, you know, a number of them still have legal claims. So if any of them, anyone's out there listening to this podcast who was a victim of, of Nechemi Weberman or is a victim of anybody who, who, who abused them and they were put in that abuse by either their school or some other authority, um, you do have rights. And I was able to help the victim in that case collect millions of dollars and people should know that even though it's really hard and really painful to confront your abuse and to try and fight for justice. And, you know, even though I said earlier, the police don't always take you seriously and the prosecutors have to be fought with. There is help. And at the end of that, all that, you know, you could be, you could be compensated and you could, you could be given a way to sort of change your life financially if, if you stick through it. Are there any cases you wouldn't take on or as long as it's the accuser is within the firm community game? I don't really have any fixed rules in that sense. And it's not really necessarily as a rule for the firm community. It's just that I'm a, I'm a firm person. You know, charity starts at home. <laughs> if no, they, I meant yeah, if yeah. the abuser is specifically from. Right. So, they, yeah, so it doesn't have to be the, the abuser is from. It's, you know, it, in fact, some people that I help were raped by non-Jews. So what's your qualifying? My qualifying thing is that A, this pers the person that I'm helping has to have some sort of mental health resource outside of what I, I offer. I Meaning I, I offer a specific set of, or a narrow rather set of options. You know, I'm a one-man show. I don't, I'm not attached to any organization. I don't get any kind of funding or any kind of help from anybody. So I can do only what I can do. I'm not trained. I'm not a mental health professional. I, I know that I, I can, I have a public platform that I could use. I know that I have connections with journalists and, and lawyers and law enforcement personalities that, that, you know, I can help them navigate. But this comes, this comes with a, with a big price, you know, socially, mentally, financially, et cetera. And those are parts that I cannot provide. And so usually I'm going to try to look to see if this person has the requisite support system that's going to help them that's going to help them sustain the type of fight that I'm going to help them fight. But other than that, if anybody really, I don't, I mean, I'll help anyone who's willing and who's able to, to go through with it. Do survivors come to you and then retract and say, you know what, I don't want to go down this path. And then your whole case goes, or do you look deeper and try to find other people for the same case? I always try to find other people if I can. 
the problem with finding other people is that you need somebody to disclose their abuse to you. You can't really, or you shouldn't really go up to somebody and say, hey, you know, I heard you might have been, you know, et cetera. So you have to respect people's- You have to get know, them to talk first. You have to get them to talk. But of course, driving what's behind most of the people who come forward is, it's almost never in my experience, a revenge thing or a justice thing. It's almost always the, you know, people wishing they could keep it a secret. It's just that the fear of it happening to other people is driving them and to, to speak up and causing them to lose sleep or causing them to feel responsible. So of course, always I'm looking for other people because that's really what it's about. You wanna save people from future harm, the harm that already happened, happened. But with that being said, I, I've never had anybody recant ever. There's no thing as recanting as far as I'm concerned, because just people should understand that the, the percentage of, of false accusations is so minuscule. It's really something that there are statistics. There are, prof there are numbers that professionals- I'm not talking about false accusations. I'm saying people are not willing to pay the price of going public and pursuing absolutely, this. Absolutely, absolutely. The majority of people that I speak to, have, who, you know, even ones that have come forward eventually, they require require a lot of convincing or a lot of support, a lot of validation. And many, of course, people change their mind and backtrack. I had one case recently where a, yo a young woman was extre is extremely brave and has been extremely consistent and extremely motivated to go forward. And then we got her in front of a prosecutor and she totally blanked. She, blo she, she blanked on a story that she told many times. And thankfully she had told it to other police officers in, in the past who had detailed notes because, you know, so she was credible, but, uh, and this happens, you know, this, this does happen. It's intense. It, okay. She simply forgot the details of her case. A and yeah, it happens where people take two steps, you know, one step forward and two steps, two steps back, I guess. Quick question. Are there like big cases out there that you're working on? Nobody knows about it, but they're active and they are going to shul and still very respected people in the community, but you are trying to take them down. Absolutely. Quite a number. Uh, the vast majority of cases that I'm involved in and that I know that I might, you know, other people in this space, other activists and advocates in the space are the vast, vast majority are secret and will never come out and are ongoing in various stages of quote unquote ongoing because of the nature of the problem, because of what we just said, because of people, you know, being afraid and, and backing out, et cetera, et cetera. And other things, it's just, yeah, at any time- Other things like what? Proof, you know, circumstances, abusers die, uh, witnesses die, people, people move away, people's memory, you know, there's, I mean, there's just a, Let's just put it this way. The default status for a sexual abuse case is that it's ongoing and secret. Yeah. Are you able to go public or that's not in the best interest of the survivors? I usually, my personal preference is always to go public. The, I, I believe very fervently, and this is, you know, underpins the majority of my work, is that I believe that sunlight disinfects and that things that people do in secret right, with the hope that it will never be known by anybody, the antidote, the, the, the direct um, medicine for that is, is shedding light and speaking public. 
You know, if, if, if it's true that abusers and pedophiles and, and, and predators, you know, operate with in the dark and, and depend on their victims keeping their secrets, the first thing that I try to do is get a person to understand is that we're holding, we're holding on to secrets for other people. We're helping them when the last, the last thing we should be doing at the very minimum, we should tell our stories and say what happened to us and that we should always Remember that if the people we're talking about didn't want to be spoken of this way, they should they should they should adjust their behavior. So let me just backtrack a little bit. Since in America, at least, you're innocent until proven guilty, but you're in the activist slash journalist space. Don't you have the power to just to go ahead and shed the light? Yes, of course. And so, yeah. Well, first of all, I want to just say that innocent until proven guilty is a legal concept. Okay, that is a concept that- And you're only, not a lawyer. I am not a lawyer and I'm not a cop and I'm not a prosecutor, I'm not a judge. And neither is anybody in the public, okay? The innocent until proven guilty means that if a person is charged with a crime, we are not allowed to assume that they are guilty and the, the, we, I mean, the government cannot assume that they are guilty and therefore they are, they are, not, they, they, they are, they are entitled to liberty and to, and to defense, et cetera, et cetera. The fact is that as the public, as people who consume information and make judgments about our safety and well-being all the time, we absolutely make judgments about people all the time. We can and should make judgments about people all the time. So there is no concept of innocent until proven guilty in the public sphere. There is, there is the opposite. There is we guard ourselves until we're certain people are safe. And we, we behave this way in all manner of life, except, like I said earlier, where there's somebody did something. And now there's somebody who did something, there's a counter narrative that that person's saying, yeah, but why are you believing that person and not me, right? So of course, I think that we should always speak out, but it's, never, it's usually not my story. And so I, my goal is to get somebody to speak out. And, and when I say speaking out, I don't mean the person, any person needs to or should say, I am so-and-so and this is what happened to me and that's who did it. But what I mean to say is that when we know the name of a person, who's abuser, right? If we say somebody to my, let's say, I'll give you an example. My, you know, you, you could have a good friend who told you that a rabbi at a seminary is abusive some years ago, right? And there's thousands of women who went to that seminary. And so it, what, we, what we do is we, we go and say, my friend told me a rabbi. When I, if I had it my way, I would say my friend told me that rabbi and say their name, right? We should get accustomed to putting the names of people who are untrustworthy into, pub into the public. Of course, you deal with, a lot, with, the, with the rules of Lashon Hara and all these things, but there's many, many, many halachic examples of informing the public without it being Lashon Hara. There are benefits to saying a rabbi versus the rabbi when you are searching for information before you're making accusations. Of course. Well, again, I, I'm certainly not <laughs> suggesting anyone make accusations. I want to move on. You said how the activism and the advocacy are two separate things. Right. To me, it sounded like one big talent pot. And then you explained it, how it's different. Can you explain it to our listeners as well? Yes, yes. And I think that also helps explain a little bit part of the, the question you asked in terms of the controversy, right? Nobody thinks it's controversial to help somebody who was a victim of a crime and needs, needs that help. In fact, most people, when they come for help, they say, I want to do it quietly. I want to do it super secret. I just want to be able to go on with my life. But the problem is, is that I'm also an activist. Right? 
and an activist is not a person is an advocate for a specific person. This is me not knowing who the people are. It's just knowing that this needs to change, right? There's two parts. There's the part that the individual person needs help. Then there's the part where the problem exists because of a society, a societal issue, a communal problem. And so when you're doing activism, your, your mandate is to bring public awareness, is to say things that are unpopular, excuse me, is to challenge authority, speak truth to power, right? That's what makes me controversial because, you know, nobody wants to hear that aside for Chai Lifeline, aside for Chaveirim, and aside for Atzal and Shorim, and all these beautiful things we do for each other, we also cover up abuse, right? But to be an activist means to, is to say, is to say out of your mouth, that Basin routinely covers up abuse. This rabbi routinely takes away custody from parents for the wrong reason, you know, or based in order, like you have to say things that require change and that makes it controversial. You know, people don't like hearing things that are unpleasant. Can you give us some examples of how does, I mean, it's obvious accusations come out against a rabbi and then their rabbi or the based in protects them. But could you share some details from a specific story sure. on how gruesome it is? Sure. Okay. I'll first give you an example that I am aware of for the first time that I'm involved in, and then one that was told to me anecdotally by other activists. Just to, it underscores how the, you know the problem that we're the problem that we're dealing with. It's very well known that the founder of Baruch Bar Shomrim pled guilty to child sexual abuse uh, two weeks ago. Okay. And so the, the, there is an organization in, in Borough Park and in most Jewish communities called Shomrim. That, that is a, that it's a private patrol slash police force that's meant to liaise between the police department and the various communities. And this is, this is a benefit usually to the Jewish community because they come faster and they're more sensitive to our problems, et cetera, et cetera. But of course, also, if they're the ones who are the, the you know, the self-appointed cops, and they're the ones who are the ones who liaise with the cops, they have, they wield an immense amount of power and, and mystique. And so the founder and longtime leader of this community, of this, of this, or rather, of this patrol group, Shomrim in Borough Park, Yanki Daskal, um, was arrested in 2018 for sexually abusing a young, a, a girl who was actually placed in his care by her parents as the found, of the, the leader of Shomrim, you know, he was asking and he was helping people in their lives. And so he was, she was placed in his care and, and he groomed her and he sexually abused her over the, over the course of several months. And he traveled to different states to do it. And he, he was arrested originally on these charges in 2018 uh, uh, by the Brooklyn District Attorney's Office. And, and by the way, Shomrim liaises with the Brooklyn District Attorney's Office too. And, um, he was, oh, he was released on very favorable bond conditions and sort of that prosecution was dragging out for a very long time. I, through my activism and through my, my work, knew right, and heard through the grapevine that, that, the, that the, A, that he had more victims, and B, that the victim was sort of being pressured, being tremendously pressured by her family and others to not cooperate with the prosecution. And so... I, of course, and others were very worried that he's going to wind up skating on these charges and having the charges just dismissed. And, and, and actually, that's, you know, that's really what was happening with the district attorney's office. They were just really sort of schlepping it out. And then we're going to dismiss the charges. Logba Omer of that year, 
I saw a photo of Yaki Daskal dancing in front of the fire with a with a Rambo in Borough Park, right? So, and I had heard that he was given Aliyah and Yantif. So, right, originally when he was arrested, he was forced to resign from Shomrim and people sort of repulsed. But then as time passed and people stopped talking about it, the details of his accusations were not known, sort of it was going away. And so he started being reintegrated into society and being treated like a regular member. He was being honored. So I went and I tweeted a picture of him being dancing along with the, with, the, with, with this rabbi in Borough Park. And I also screenshotted and, and included the very lurid and difficult to read charges of fact, right? You know, that the district attorney put in their indictment because people, you know, from, especially from people in these communities, but most people don't go and read court filings. They don't go and actually look to see what's being filed in court and what the prosecutors are alleging. You'll read what's in the papers and you'll say, all right, you know, the guy's obviously a chazer and did a bad thing. And, you know, you sort of rely on the cops or the prosecutors, right? But in the Frum community, because of that, it's very easy to say, oh, he's being framed or we don't know like, the details. It's, it's a lie, right? So I went and I put out the details. Within an hour, I got a phone call from somebody at Shomrim, high up at Shomrim asking me, what am I doing? And what do I know about the case? And why am I, to you know, trying sort of to, I don't want to say bully me, but you know, definitely maneuver me into stopping to speak about it, finding out what I'm, right. And he was subsequently arrested by the federal, by, by the FBI, because he, he happened to break federal laws also. So they saved the prosecution and he slept out that prosecution for another two years, but lo and behold, he pled guilty. Okay. And so throughout this time, I, I, I was posting to keep public awareness alive and I was getting attacked from all sides. Why are you posting about it? Up until the day before he pled guilty, I had people in my replies and in my DMs on Twitter and in my WhatsApps and, and texts saying, why are, you, why are you attacking him? What's your problem? I got messages back from his family to people who I know saying, why is, what's, his, what's your you know, attachment to this case? But guess what? I know of four other victims of Yankee Dasko, they're never coming forward. I, I've spoken to some of them firsthand, okay? I know what they're dealing with, at, you know, seeing this play out over the course of what's now almost five years and then getting within a hair of, of getting away with it. And even during all that time, nobody was talking about it. One guy, as far as I know, Shulam Leifer, is busy pounding away at it on the soapbox. And yeah, but there's a reason. It's not just that I need the public to know there are actually people who are desperate for some relief at the hands of this man, right? And if nobody is going to say, here's what he did, you can't believe him, the government knows what they're doing, then the majority of people are going to believe that he, he did nothing wrong. And so that's, that, that's one, and that's very recent. Like he pled guilty last week. And I was, I was at court, I was at court the day before he pled guilty, where they were arguing with the judge over the jury questions. And like, I could tell he, his de entire defense was predicated on destroying the credibility of this, of this victim, of convincing the jury that, that she's, that she, you know, that she's, that she did, that she's the one who's, you know, going after him. And this was a girl who was by all accounts, 15, when he got her hand, when he got his hands on her and he was 58, you know? And so this would have been a very brutal process for her. So I tried to use my, pub, my public platform to level the playing field, sort of, I don't want to say bully, but like I said earlier, these are, these are people who are, did bad things. They should, they should be ashamed. They're hoping nobody goes and climbs into the details and looks and tells on them what they did. But the antidote is telling. The antidote is saying in its, all its un, unglorious details. And it's just, you know, it's really hard. It turns my stomach 
but it's important. I could see people being silent and not doing what you're doing, but I cannot understand the people who reach out to you to try to silence you and to protect the abuser. Friday after I, after he pled guilty, I did. I called up that same person, called me from Shomrim three years ago, or whenever it was that I was 2019, I was tweeting about it. And, and I said, new, no, new. No. And he said, well, I stand by it. I still, th I promise you this, this, I still think that it's wrong to put our dirty laundry in public and that you create anti-Semitism when you tell people that the director, when the founder of Shomer was a sexual abuser. And first of all, I reject that. I reject that out of hand. Anti-Semitism existed for before Shomrim. It's a, it's, a, it's a thing that exists as long as Judaism exists. And we do not need to give anybody, we do not have to create excuses for anybody for saying things about us. Of course it's true. Of course it's true that anti-Semites are going to seize upon things that are in the public record that we've done, which are bad, which they can easily say, look what they do, right? Of course, of course, that, and we all know that in our bones. It's why we're, if you're raised from, you're taught from the earliest age stages to be careful how you act in public and to be, and, and to understand that what you do reflects on the entire Jewish community and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But nowhere is it that now fighting these problems is what causes. The anti-Semitism is always, of course, caused by the people doing these bad things. And but did you tell him you are Shomrim, you are supposed to protect the people from those types of people and you didn't, so course. we had to bring the outside. Oh, of course. Okay, of course. thank I you. Mean, I, I certainly, in fact, when he called me in 2019, recorded, yeah, he said, he said, I said, my first thing was, I said, how dare you, how dare you call me and try to keep me quiet when I'm the only one doing this, when it was you and your organization and your people who we depend on to keep ourselves safe. And I did, I said, the father of that girl depended on you guys to keep her safe. And now you're asking me why I'm trying to convince the public that there's something there. And so of course, how dare you? But the reality is that everybody knows what I'm saying. Okay, it's a deeply uncomfortable thing to talk about. And it's easier to shoot the messenger. Shooting the messenger is not a concept that I invented or anyone invented any more than I'm inventing anti-Semitism. It's all there, it's all true. And of course it's all explainable, but I think I'm right. I think what I'm doing is righteous. And yeah, I'll keep, I'll keep saying what I say. I wanna switch courses a little bit, if you allow. I'd like to talk about the beauties of our communities, like filters and guarding your eyes and all these beautiful things that our communities have created. And then on the flip side, there have been instances where people who are involved in these organizations, not just organizations, but companies that create kosher phones and filtered devices that then schools are enforcing onto families and students, are taking advantage of that kind of access, technologically speaking, to abuse and to take advantage of children and adults. Yeah. Are you able to expand on this? I know I'm alluding. I could things. expand. Yeah, I think I could try to take what you give me and, and, and sort of run with it. Being sensitive to, I'm, I'm certainly accused all the time, and I want to just deny it here for the sake of being complete. I'm being, I'm accused of trying to bring down the Trump community or say bad things or, you know, whatever, different versions of just hating, quote unquote, called a hater. 
And so, of course, if I'm going to continue to talk about all the bad things, I'm going to be called a hater. And no, I'm not a hater. You know, I, I, nobody who spends this amount of time trying to solve problems or at least be part of solutions is, is a hater. But like I'll, I'll reiterate, solving problems begins with acknowledging that they're there. With that being said, all this is not special to the, from, to the Jewish or from community. It, you know, there, it, I don't know who first coined the phrase, who watches the watchers, but it's not a from concept. It's, you know, it is not news to anybody that people are going to abuse their power. It's not news to anybody that people are going to use their gatekeeping tools, which in our community, like you said, of course, if you, if you have certain boundaries as a community, you want to keep, okay? Be it kashras, be it sneers, be it, be it Shamir uh, Sanayim, right? You name it. There are going to be people who are experts, people who are facilitators, machers, right? The term is macher, but macher in itself is not a bad thing. In fact, this, you know, we need people who to do things, right? But it's also, of course, true that people, you know, power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. If you get if you get into a space where 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 we can control people again, not a judgment value, but if you're going to control people's access to the internet, okay, and then if you're going to place that control voluntarily in the hands of a very small number of people, they're going to have immense power. And then if they have that immense power, some of them are gonna be corrupt, right? And if so, if we're not putting in safeguards into the places where we're, we're handing over our agency, where we're handing over our um, safety into their hands, we should expect that some of these people are gonna be taken advantage of. I find that as a firm community, we're very committed and we're very willing to do the first part, okay? We're really willing to say, we have a problem as a community collectively we wanna solve and we're gonna entrust a small group of people to solve that problem, right? And give them a tremendous amount of faith, but we're, we're, not, we're not remembering the, fa the fact. The fact is you, somebody has to watch them. Even the Rav, even the guy doing the conversions is going to sometimes be human and take advantage of the people that are trying to convert. But you hear in the convert space, a lot of, you know, horrific stories. Well, I'm in the sexual abuse space, so I, it overlaps. But, you know, I've heard hair-raising stories of people, women specifically, undergoing the conversion process, being taken advantage of or openly set, preyed upon by, you know, rabbis or different people, religious functionaries within that process. Same goes for get, forget them. Um, and so in the case I think you're talking about with TAG and that Steen case in, in, um, in Baltimore, yeah, I mean, I've not seen it written about in, in, in the secular press, but like, you know, if I was a reporter, I'd, I'd be writing a story about how there's a community which entrusts, you know, one organization and not just entrusts, right? It becomes a f financially a big thing, you know, like, um, and these are all, again, I'm not here accusing. I'm not inventing some accusation that there are people who say that they're trying to maintain the kedusha of the from community who are actually themselves not so holy or they're, you know, or they're using it for financial gain. You know, everybody knows that there are kashras, for instance, certifications that are eh, more about financial, you know, chicanery or, you know, I've seen it even in some cases 
referred to by others as a mafia business. Right now, I'm not saying, of course, kashrus is a mafia, but if you're going to make, if you're going to tr eat only where the rabbi says you can eat, maybe some people are going to uh, use that and, and extort businesses, you know? And so, of course, with the extortion that you have with, or extort, the possibility for extortion in a situation where there's a company called Tag who's filtering everybody's internet and the schools are demanding that you filter and you can't put your kid in the school without showing the hasher from Tag and then you have to pay for it also, right? And so now you're paying for something that you must pay for and that, you know, it, it, there's no competition, there's no choice, right? So there's a monopoly, but on top of that monopoly, now we're giving them so much power, the administrator might actually be using the, the, the very technological tools you're giving them to prey on your people. And that should have been thought of, in my view, day one. Like, this is all very obvious. You, you, we, we know that we can't trust people with money on the table when they're cleaning our house. And if we, and if we forgot, we, we have WhatsApp messages going around, chain messages, every single air of Pesach, people reminding themselves not to trust their cleaning help and not da -da -da because they might steal from, come on. You don't know that somebody, the watchers need to be watched. The watchers need to be watched. I love that. Maybe we'll title our yeah. episode this. Who watches the watchers? That's how I would title this episode. Who watches the watchers? Well, have you found allies in powerful positions in very exclusive Jewish communities? No. I found allies in powerful spaces. Thank you very much. I, <laughs> I'm talking about rabbis and no. rebbes and principals. No. That makes me very sad. I'm sorry. If it makes you sad, it makes it crushes my soul. It, but it does. But you should know that I like I've not given up, and I won't give up on our community because to me it's not a Jew, it's not a Torah problem. It's not a Jewish problem. It's a human, human being. Problem. It's we as Jews and as communities and as Torah adherent Jews, we forget what the Torah teaches us about the fallibility of man. We forget that the Torah tells us we have Hilchas Yichud. Go back to Weberman. We have Hilchus Yichud. It does not exclude rabbis. It does not, ex in fact, the opposite. The more powerful you are, the more, more, the more looked up to in the community, the more responsible the rules of Yichud hold you. Under the laws of Yichud, if you have in a position of authority, the, you must have more, what they're, they're, they're called gedarim, right? They're um, boundaries, right? And so the Torah and all of our halacha and all of our, um, everything we know about chastity, Right? I don't want to sit, use vulgarities on you, on a from, you know, so you I want to can. try to stay the way, I'm trying to try to stay away from the word sex so much, but like everything, but we're, you know, we're adults. I'm hoping only adults are listening to this. Um, anyway, but, but um, the word sex, you know, everything we know as from Jews about sexuality has all these warnings built in. Right? Yeah. And so like, just anecdotally, in the, in the Weberman case, and part of how I was able to help extract all these millions of dollars from Satmar, which they absolutely reliable, right? Was because they could, not, they could not establish a connection between, backing up, in New York State, there's a requirement in civil law to, keep, to get people responsible, to have an entity responsible for, for abuse that they should have known about and stopped, right? Not what they, that they perpetrated. But for instance, if you were in a school, right? And there was a member of their staff who was abusing, right? So you have to prove that the school, one would have to prove that the school either knew 
or should have known that this was happening. That's called being on notice. If you can't prove notice, then you cannot say you can't hold the school liable because from the day they found out, they may have done everything they could have to stop it. Right. And they're not, they're not, they're not meant to know things that are not no unknowable. So there's ways to get through this, right? But, but because Weberman was never an employee of the yeshiva and because they were able to say, well, there's never any connection, you know, they were able to disavow him. We couldn't put the yeshiva on notice, but I was able to find testimony in the trial that a, that a guidance counselor at school, right? So a Mrs. Rebitz and so-and-so at Beis Rachel Sadm went and inspected the premises where Nehemi Weber was conducting his therapy because he was unlicensed. You know, calling it therapy itself is just wrong so on so many levels. It's so problematic on so many levels, but where he was conducting his work. And she came back to school and she testified to this at trial that she found, she was shocked. She found a, a, an apartment with a lock and in his office was a bedroom with another lock on the door, right? And she said, she came back to school, she said in, during, you know, in the, it, everything she knows about Yithud, she, she was deeply concerned about the, about the nature in which he was conducting these interviews the with his, with, with his sessions with his clients. And then a, and then we, and then we got an expert in halacha and law, a, a, um, a law professor who's also, uh, has smicha from YU. Who, who wrote a, a, a lengthy affidavit that based on the, based on the halachos, uh, based on the halachos, and of course, and the bylaws of Satmar, that they kept the strictest versions of Yifud and, 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 and rules between governing, you know, the, the interactions between the sexes. And so, and so he said, of course, according to Satmar, they had to have, have been assuming that there's sexual activity, according to halacha, uh, behind those walls, and so that was that was able to sort of force them into into taking responsibility. But I say all this to say that I'm not inventing anything new, you know. When I say that, by the way, the guy running the tag could be a sexual predator, but we've not seen it mentioned anywhere by anyone. And so until the people who are doing this type of control are the ones building in the safeguards that they should know and we all know need to be there. It's going to be left to people like me bang, banging our drums and, and being unpopular in public. Okay, so the last final question is what needs to change to get more leadership on board with you? Leadership. What's the plan? Influential people within the community. I have to be honest with you. My mode of activism has never been focused at power, at decision makers. I don't believe as a rule that people who want to make change should be going to the people already in charge to discuss these things because they know a lot better than you and me what needs to be changed. I always felt and do feel that what the conversations need to happen amongst us, amongst the people, amongst the Jews, the community, you know, and it, we're the ones ultimately who appoint our rabbis. We're the ones who ultimately decide where to send our schools. It's hard. It's a long discussion. But really what it need, what's required, in my view, is that the people are having the kind of discussions we're having without shame. You know, with, without... And nobody is embarrassed to discuss the shit of crisis. Nobody's embarrassed to discuss High Lifeline. I'll say one final point. You know, my, my parents had a very hard time have, they love me and have a great relationship, have a hard time 
with what I do. It's not popular. They're in borough park. They're Hasidish. They're rabbish. Not, not, a, not a fun thing. And they ask me, why do you do this? But the fact of the matter is that nobody will be shocked to hear that surviving sexual abuse leaves people fighting for their lives, fighting for their lives for the rest of their life in many cases. I'm not saying it's insurmountable. What I think could be further than the truth. You get the proper help. You get, you know, you get help. You could have a thriving and great life. But the fact is, if it's not getting help, this is quite simply a matter of life and death in many cases. I myself have driven people to the hospital and picked them up from the hospital um, before, middle, and after suicide attempts. Okay, I'm not trying to make myself sad, but this is this is the, these are the stakes. The stakes, the stakes are life and death. And I say to my parents and to anyone listening that there is a high lifeline. People are happy to do bikeathons and spend and raise millions of dollars and they should like it's such a beautiful thing that we do in our community there's no problem that we are acknowledged that we want to solve that we don't do a fantastic job solving but like who's who's here for the people dying of suicide who's here for the people who can't parent who can't have kids who can't have lives who can't who can't, who can't face you know it's devastating who's the person who you know somebody who dies by suicide is just as dead their family has to sachiva. Their their loved ones miss them. <laughs> their children are yisaimim, right? Their wives are um, widows. Widows. People are real, and as well as good as we do in in combating those things and raising the money, we need to be able. To, we need to say that these problems are self inflicted, and they also will be self-fixed. High Life was not started by a rabbi. It was started by somebody who was deeply connected to cancer, I imagine. And the people who help them don't have to go and see, oh, don't justify it, right? I tweeted a few weeks ago, and this was a true story. I bumped, bumped into a former colleague of mine who knew me before my activism and, and, you know, and then said to me, Shulam, why did you become an activist? Were you sexually abused? And of course, that's something that I'm asked a lot. I'm not going to address that because nobody should have to answer that question. Nobody should have to answer that question in order to justify what they're doing. My response to him was, I've never once been asked by somebody that I, I used to volunteer to pick up family members or drive, drop off family members at Sloan Kettering, you know, family members with, of people with cancer and people need to go to and from the hospital. There's all manner of volunteering that goes on for that. I used to pick people up all the time and they would be very thankful, but nobody once ever asked me, do you have a fact, did you survive cancer? Do you have a family member who had cancer? Why do you do this? Because it's obvious. So, so, you know, we need to help ourselves. No one's coming to help. No one's coming to save us. My message is no one's coming to save us. There is nothing that I want to say to anyone in power. Not at all. I want to tell everyone listening, we're going to save ourselves. Do you have final remarks. This is where I ask you if you have anything else you'd like to add. Or... No, I, I, that, that's it. I mean, I've never spoken about this really the way I have now in public before. I, I'm well known and I'm public, but like as an activist and as a person who complains about broad things, I generally don't speak about the individual work that I do with victim advocacy for a number of reasons. But because it's a Tishabov episode and because the more I do it, the more I see really it is a, it's a Tishabov situation. You know, if we all knew what the reality is, is that our brothers and sisters and loved ones and neighbors and friends deal with, then we would all sit down and, and <laughs> have a tissue. We would cry and cry and cry and we would not stop crying. 
But the only reason we have a Tisha B'Av is because we used to have a Beis HaMikdash. Well, I say a Tisha B'Av in the sense that it's a morning. But I'm saying anyone who cares and, and feels deeply usually does have a more personal connection because otherwise what the natural thing is to just shut it out and pretend like it doesn't exist. Yeah, my, my, my brothers and my sisters are dying. My, my family is not functioning collectively, not my actual brothers and sisters. Of course, I do have family members who have suffered from sexual abuse. I have a sibling who disclosed to me their abuse when I was eight and I had to help them go to my parents. And so I can go on and on about the personal connections that I, I personally have to the story of sexual abuse and to the, you know, the problem. But I avoid that not because I don't want to talk about it, but because it misses the point to force people to put themselves out there, to take a chunk of themselves and throw it out into the public sphere, almost for entertainment purposes, because otherwise you're not taken seriously or you're not credible. People need to know, know why. I feel like that is part of the problem. What's wrong with our dialogue? Everybody is, everyone has stake. When I say my brother, I mean my brothers and sisters in the, Jew in the Jewish, in the communal sense. It's really true that our family is dysfunctional and that we're suffering. And that if we don't all sit down and, and start dealing with it as a family, we're never going to solve it. Well, we've been trying to do this on the No More Silence segment for years already. We've been giving individuals a voice, whether they came on anonymously or publicly, whether they wanted to name their abuser or not. This has been my way of joining you in this mission, and it's so nice to finally speak to you. It's really a pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Have a meaningful fast and easy one for everyone participating tomorrow. Thank you for listening until the end. As promised, my announcement for you is that Danielle Dressner's sentencing will be this Tish above tomorrow, the day after tomorrow, or today at 9 a.m., depending on when you're listening. So if you would like to show your support and show up, you can go to Haverstraw Justice Court on 1 Rosman Road in Garnerville, New York. Have a meaningful and easy fast. See you next week. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.